Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Greetings, and welcome to today's program, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Patty James of the club's Health and Medicine member-led forum and chair of this program. The Commonwealth Club continues to be an all-virtual organization at this time. We encourage you to become a member of the Commonwealth Club, and you'll receive discounts on on programming. To learn more, visit CommonwealthClub.org. An upcoming program that I'm also chairing will be on June 1st at 10 o'clock Pacific time, and it's Sam Apple, and he'll be talking about his book, Ravenous, Otto Warburg, The Nazis, and the Search for the Cancer Diet Connection. And now it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Robert Lustig. Dr. Lustig is a professor emeritus of pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology and member of the Institute for Health Policy Studies at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Lustig is a neuroendocrinologist and an international authority on obesity, diabetes, nutrition, and neuroscience. Dr. Lustig graduated from MIT in 1976 and received his MD from Cornell University Medical College in 1980. He completed his pediatric residency at St. Louis Children's Hospital in 1983 and the clinical fellowship at UCSF in 1984. From there, he spent six years at a research association in neuroendocrinology at the Rockefeller University. In 2013, he received his master's studies of law from UC Hastings. Dr. Lustig is one of the leaders of the global anti-sugar and real food movements to improve global health. He is author of over 200 academic works which connect the science of food and metabolism to the policy and the politics of obesity and diabetes pandemics. He also comments on the role of industry tactics to promote hedonic substances and behaviors and the resulting aftermath of healthcare and societal devolution. Dr. Lustig is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, Fat Chance, Beating the Odds Against Sugar, Processed Food, Obesity and Disease, The Hacking of the American Mind, The Science Behind the Corporate Takeover of Our Bodies and Brains, and of course, uh, the reason that we're here today and that he'll be talking about his book, Meta- new book, Metabolical, The Lure and Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition and Modern Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Lustig. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Patty. I got to tell you, I don't know who you were talking about, but that was a really long introduction. You did all that. It's amazing, isn't it? Wow. Well, and that's that was the short version, just so you know. So, so you're a physician who also went to law school. And in my mind, metabolical is you making your case. So you weave together the dangers of processed foods and what it's doing to our bodies nutrition, well, or the lack thereof, as well as modern medicine, which a no-holds-bar approach to certain medical establishments, such as the American Diabetes Association and others, and, of course, the effect that the aforementioned have on our economy. Um, We're not going to talk a lot about economy today, because I do know you're talking to Jeffrey Sachs, the very well-known economist at, at the end of the month. So what I let, let's start with um, how is metabolical um, different from fat chance? And then after that, we'll go into the two main tenets, which I'll talk about in a moment. So right. how's it different? Thanks for asking. So um, the standard mantra that, you know, the world learned was you are what you eat. And 
when I started doing research, it became very clear that that was not the case. And so in Fat Chance, I stated my case that, in fact, you are what you do with what you eat, that actually metabolism is even more important than nutrients or calories. Um, well, to be honest with you, I got it wrong too. And over the last eight years, more and more data has come forward. And I came to realize I needed to restate it as well. And now metabolical states, you are what they did with what you eat. In fact, it's the food processing that takes food and turns it into poison. It's a, basically a wicked alchemy that makes you think you're eating healthy, but actually killing yourself. And you know, that sounds rash and it sounds strident, but in fact, you know, that's what the data show. Okay. Yeah. So everything in this book, and again, we talked a little bit about what everything that's in this book, but everything in the book goes back to two main tenets, and that is protect the liver and feed the gut. So, so let's start there. And then we'll go into chronic illnesses and, and then, you know, what are we having for dinner based on everything that we've just learned? So the liver, what are we protecting it from? So first of all, you have to understand that nobody knows what the word healthy means. Mm -hmm. In fact, the FDA uh, has a definition and it's ridiculous. It says low in saturated fat, has vitamin D and enough potassium and, uh, um, and folate. Yeah. No, it doesn't even say folate. Oh, okay. USDA refuses to define healthy in part because then if they defined it, then um, all the food industry couldn't put healthy all over its packaging. Um, the fact of the matter is no one knows what healthy is. And so, you know, people get away with uh, true, truly murder. Um, I define it. And I define it scientifically. And the two precepts are protect the liver, feed the gut. Mm -hmm. Any food that does both is healthy. Any food that does neither is poison. And any food that does one or the other, but not both, is somewhere in the middle. And the empiric data actually bear this out. All right, so protect the liver. You know, protect it from what? protected from the onslaught of mono and disaccharides, simple sugars and starch breaking down to glucose because the liver has a limited capacity to metabolize those molecules. And if you overwhelm the liver's capacity, if you provide a tsunami of sugar early on in the duodenum, you know, after the stomach, it goes straight to the liver, the liver can't handle it, and it takes the excess and turns it into liver fat. And that's when chronic disease starts. If the liver can export it out, it's triglyceride, and it's a uh, setup for heart disease or for obesity. If the liver can't export it out, then it precipitates in the liver as a lipid droplet. Now you've got non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and you have the setup for type 2 diabetes and cirrhosis and um, all the other diseases that go along with insulin resistance, such as cancer and Alzheimer's. So... Bottom line, protect the liver. And you also have to protect it from branched-chain amino acids, which most people think are good. And if you're building muscle, they are good. But if you're not building muscle, then they get turned into liver fat as well. Uh, protect it from iron, which is an oxidative stress. Protect it from uh, glyphosate, you know, uh, Roundup. Um, protect it from uh, heavy metals, which, you know, we've now found in baby food. So 
Protect the liver. The liver is your detoxification organ, but it has a breaking point, and we are way beyond it. So that's part one. Part two, feed the gut. Feed the gut what? Well, the gut, the, the bacteria in your gut, they eat what you eat. The question is how much did you get versus how much did they get? If you starve the gut, the gut gets unhappy. Those bacteria will feed on you. They will strip the mucin layer right off your intestinal epithelial cells to provide its own food at your expense. And now the bacteria are opposed right to your intestinal epithelial cell with no barrier. And that starts in irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, leaky gut, the transfer of cytokines and lipopolysaccharides and whole bacteria into your portal vein. Now you've got systemic inflammation. And that, if it even gets to the brain, can actually cause behavioral health disorders such as depression or even psychiatric disease like psychosis. So the bottom line is you have to feed your bacteria. If you feed your bacteria, your bacteria will be happy. And the question is, well, what do they eat? Well, they love fiber. Soluble and insoluble, and unfortunately, processed food, of course, is fiberless food on purpose because you can't freeze fiber. Mm -hmm. Prove it. Take an orange, put it in your freezer overnight, take it out the next day, let it thaw, try to eat it, see what you get. You get mush. How come you get mush? The ice crystals macerate the cell wall inside the orange. The water rushes in, turns it to mush. Hey, food industry knows that. They can squeeze it and freeze it, and now it lasts forever. Now it's frozen concentrated orange juice. You can sell it on the commodities exchange, storable food. So an orange is not a commodity, but orange juice is. All right? So they processed it to reduce depreciation, increase profit. The problem is they just deprived your microbiome of what it needs to survive, and so you get sick. Let's go back to the liver for a little bit. Um, I've heard uh, you say that there are, uh, when people go for their yearly physicals, um, sometimes they have their, their liver tested. Just, you know, I want my liver test. How's my liver doing type thing? But yep. you mentioned that um, the lab tests have changed since the 1970s, basically that the goalposts have moved. So, so talk about... If somebody wants to make sure that their liver is healthy, or then what lab tests should they get, and what are their doctors going to tell them? Right. So the biggest issue is that your doctor doesn't know how to figure this out. And I know because I'm the one who has to teach it at UCSF. So I know what they're, what they're teaching, and I know what doctors are not learning. So you order your chem panel, you know, your doctor gets your chem panel, and a whole bunch of tests come back. One of those tests, is particularly interesting. It's called an ALT, alanine aminotransferase. Now, next to the ALT will be your number, and then there'll be a, uh, a column uh, where it'll say high or low, okay? And it'll say the reference range. Now, that reference range says that an ALT up to n uh, the number 40 is fine. That, that's the break point for abnormal is 40. No, it isn't. It's 25. Yeah. Now, how do I know that? Because when I entered medical school in 1976, the upper limit for ALT was 25. But today, the upper limit for ALT, same assay, 
is 40. How come? Yeah. Answer, because everyone has fatty liver disease today. 45% of adults in America have fatty liver disease, and nobody had fatty liver disease except alcoholics back in 1976. The entire curve has shifted to the right. Now, the lab doesn't know that. The lab thinks, oh, you know, they're healthy, so they take you know, the median, and they find two standard deviations from the mean, and that's where they cut, do the cut points. And that happens to be at 40. So they say, well, if you're below 40, it's normal. So you go to your doctor, and you've got a 33 on your ALT. And the doctor says, well, your tests are normal. No, they're not. Not even remotely. Point is, and that's very sensitive, not specific, but very sensitive, that mm -hmm. ALT. Your doctor doesn't know that because your doctor wasn't in medical school in 1976. <laughs> so how are they going to figure this out when that's not what's there? A second uh, test, very similar, uric acid. So uric acid is what causes gout. It also causes hypertension. It also is a marker for metabolic syndrome as well. The upper limit of normal on the uh, lab slip is seven. No, it's not. It's 5.5. If, if you have a uric acid over 5.5, that's a question mark to be okay. sure. And the reason is it's a proxy for sugar consumption. It's also a proxy for protein consumption, but it's a proxy for sugar consumption. So more sugar means more ATP loss because the fructose has to be phosphorylated, and there goes the ATP down to ADP, and then that goes to uric acid. Uric acid is the endogenous inhibitor of an enzyme in your blood vessels that keep your blood pressure down called nit endogenous nitric oxide synthase. So if you inhibit that, your blood pressure goes up. So, you know, um, people think salt is the big problem with blood pressure. You know, our ancestors, you know, because everything was salt-packed and salt-cured back on those schooners back in the Atlantic Ocean before there were, um, you know, uh, steam engines or refrigerators, you know, they had to basically pack all the fish and salt our ancestors consumed like 15 grams of salt a day, and they didn't have hypertension. And the reason was because their kidneys could excrete out the rest. But insulin, the hormone insulin, causes the kidney to resorb all of that excess sodium. And that's what raises the blood pressure. The question is, how come the insulin's high? It's the sugar. Mm -hmm. So if you get rid of the sugar in your diet, you can actually excrete all that sodium, and your blood pressure will go down. And I actually wrote a paper years ago, just a spoonful of sugar helps the blood pressure go up. So you got all these people worried about salt. Really what they should be worried about is sugar. Well, you know, gout used to be called, you know, the, the disease of, uh, of a rich person who could afford to eat that kind of food. That's right. Uh, and now it's sort of the opposite. It's the junky food. And then you talk about insulin and you talk about sugar and we talk about fatty liver and it's all tied in, uh, yeah, sugar, but the ultra-processed food. I, I think when people, next time everybody who's listening goes to their doctor and wants to get their liver tested based on what you just told us that they should be doing and watching for, I think there a lot of people right now think, well, I don't drink that much alcohol, so my liver's fine, without putting it in their heads that yeah, alcohol is damaging, but it's the ultra-processed food that's doing the bulk of the damage. Well, in, in particular, the sugar in the, uh, in the ultra-processed food. So 
56% of all of the food consumed in America today is ultra-processed, and that's 62% of the sugar load is in the ultra-processed food. So, you know, you are getting a big dose if you are basically, you know, going into the aisles of the supermarket. That's mm -hmm. where it's coming from. You know, people say, well, how can sugar be doing that? And the answer is sugar is like alcohol because sugar and alcohol are metabolized in the liver virtually identically. And it makes sense that that would be the case, because after all, where do you get alcohol from? Fermentation of sugar. It's called wine. We do it in Napa and Sonoma every day. The big difference between the two is that for alcohol, the yeast does the first step of metabolism called glycolysis. For sugar, we do our own first step. But after that, the intermediate pyruvate that goes to the mitochondria, mitochondria don't care where it came from. All it knows is it's being overwhelmed. And then it has no choice but to take the excess and divert it via a process called de novo lipogenesis into liver fat. And once that liver fat gets made, that's when the chronic disease starts. And that's what the empiric data show. And 45% of Americans now have fatty liver disease when 0% had it in 1980. So two things. Um, and of course, uh, um, children and fatty liver disease. Uh, there's two things, but that's, that's the, the first one that comes to mind right now. So talk about children and fatty, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Right. So, you know, children don't drink alcohol. Yeah. 20% of children who die at autopsy have fatty liver today and 40% of obese children. And the question is, well, where did the fat come from? Well, if it didn't come from alcohol, where it came from the sugar. And that's why children now get two diseases of alcohol, type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease. These were the diseases of alcoholics. These were the diseases of aging. And now five-year-olds get it. Okay? And that's one of the reasons why I had to write this book, is to make people understand that children are the canaries in the coal mine. If children are getting the diseases of aging, if they're getting the diseases of alcohol, Okay, you know something's wrong. So the question is, what's wrong? Well, it's the ultra-processed food, and the science shows it. Now, um, I want to talk about glucose, but first, let's finish up something on ultra-processed food. There's processed food, and there's ultra-processed food. Hamburgers are processed food. It's been ground up. Sure. You know, so there's, there's that. So explain the difference between processed food sure. and ultra-processed food. So my colleague, Dr. Carlos Montero at the University of Sao Paulo, has set up a very good method for th thinking this out. It's, it's called the NOVA system, and I like it very much, and it actually, the, the data fit, you know, that it's been validated. So here's a way to think about it. Let's take an apple, all right? An apple is unprocessed, and an apple also does not have a food label, because yeah. you don't need a food label for, nothing, you know, for a food that nothing's been done to. So there's no food label for an apple or for a broccoli or for a radish or for an orange for that matter, okay? That's Nova class one. Next, let's take apple slices. So it's been processed. It's been sliced. It's been potentially destemmed. Maybe the seeds have been removed, et cetera, okay? And they put them in a you know, plastic bag. That's got a food label because something's been done to it. That's Nova class two. Not too bad. Okay. Next, let's take applesauce. So applesauce has gone through a Vitamix or a Breville or something to basically you know, chew the fiber to smithereens. 
Uh, maybe sugar has been added, maybe not. You know, some are unsweetened. Okay, that would be Nova Class Three. And finally, let's take an apple drink. Okay, mm-hmm. you know, like in one of those little packages, like a Capri Sun. Okay, is there any apple left in that? Well, you know, maybe there's a little bit of juice that started it, but there's also preservatives and there's um, uh, uh, added sugar, etc. And all the fiber has been removed. That would be Nova Class Four. So you go from apple to apple slice to apple sauce to apple drink, and it's the apple drink that's the dangerous one. Now, people might say they understand that. Oh, yeah, okay, fine. But in fact, that's 56% of our current diet, and that's what's killing us. And there's data from France, there's data from the UK, there's data from the US now that demonstrate it's that Nova Class 4 that predicts disease. And that, unfortunately, is what the food industry is selling. 90% of the food in our diet today is controlled by 10 conglomerates. Bottom line, if a food has a logo you've heard of, it's ultra-processed. And it, it's also all the, uh, you know, the, the food colorings that you walk, I don't generally walk down the food aisle or the soda aisle. I don't need that kind of food, but you walk down and, and all the colors that, you know, you're an onslaught of, of colors. And, and I see the other day, a couple of days ago, that the EU is now um, warning uh, not to consume uh, titanium dioxide. I and mean, so it, it's, it's the apple is, like you said, the class four is maybe an ultra processed food, but I think of things also that people eat all the time, which are chips and candy and cereal, if you want to call it cereal, it's really just sugar, um, that have all these additives in it. And I've heard you say it's it's not just the food, it's what they do to the food. I think you mentioned that earlier, but That's it's all the additives. That's right. It's not what's in the food, it's what's been done to the food that matters. All food is inherently good. It's what we do to the food that's not. Let me give you another example. Okay. Meat. Yeah. So you buy the meat in the store and there's no food label, right? Right. Okay. So you think everything's okay, right? <laughs> not necessarily. Depends. That if that animal grew up on a CAFO, yeah. on a concentrated animal feeding operation, say in Kansas, mm-hmm. okay, where it's lying in its own excrement, mm-hmm. uh, that animal in order to survive, in order so, so that animal didn't die of dysentery of its own, you know, of the, the bacteria from some other cow, okay, they had to pump that animal full of antibiotics. Okay, and those antibiotics, guess what? They're, they've changed that cow's microbiome. And we can talk about the methane story because that's where the methane comes from is the change of, of the cow's microbiome, but it also pervades the meat. And so then we eat that meat, it changes our microbiome. And so now we are not feeding the gut, we are actually causing gut uh, dysfunction in the process. And that food, you would think is non-processed. Well, actually, if it's grown on a, if if that uh, animal has been fed on a CAFO, it's processed too. So, you know, you have to know the tricks of the trade. You have to know what's been done to the food And the problem is that's not on the label and the food industry doesn't have to disclose any of that, which is why I had to write the book. Mm -hmm. So I want to explain to those listening, if you see me looking over, uh, not at you or not at Rob, Dr. Lustig, I'm looking at my questions, which I haven't looked at at all, quite frankly. (laughs) (laughs) 
and I, I have a lot of audience questions that I'm going to read um, to see if it's appropriate to ask any of them now. But in the meantime, you mentioned insulin, um, but you, you haven't explained glucose. So if you would, uh, insulin, but uh, glucose. Well, uh, I listen and read these comments. Absolutely. So the, the point is people think glucose is the problem. The, the glucose excursion, the rise in the glucose is the problem. Well, in fact, the rise in the glucose is really a proxy for the rise in insulin because the higher the glucose goes, the higher the insulin goes. And it's that insulin that drives the chronic metabolic disease. So what does insulin do? Well, diabetics take shots of insulin. It lowers blood glucose. I, I hear you, okay? And God knows if you're a diabetic and you're on insulin, you know, I'm not telling you to stop your insulin shots. However, however, you have to understand that insulin has two functions. The first is metabolic, and the second is cell growth. There are two separate signal transduction pathways in each cell. One is to take up glucose, and that will lower the blood sugar, and that will help with retinopathy, nephropathy, neuropathy, because high blood glucose causes small vessel disease. Okay, And so that's one of the reasons why diabetics have to get their blood glucose down. They have to get their hemoglobin A1C down, is to prevent retinopathy, nephropathy, neuropathy. And I'm for that. I'm not against that. That's good. However, the insulin also drives a second pathway called MAP kinase, and that causes cell division. It causes coronary artery muscle, smooth muscle, cell division. Well, that tightens up your coronary arteries and makes it much more likely you'll have a heart attack. It does the same thing in your uh, carotid arteries. That's more likely you're going to get a stroke. And also, that insulin is driving breast glandular cells causing increase in uh, division rate and making it much more likely you will end up with cancer. And we have learned that insulin is the driver, not of cancer uh, initiation, but of cancer growth. So you got to get the insulin down. Now, glucose is the thing that makes insulin go up, right? That's one of the reasons why the ketogenic diet has taken you know the world by storm, if you will, is because it keeps your glucose down, therefore it keeps your insulin down. And that is true if you can stay on it, which is not so easy, and it's actually very difficult to stay on the ketogenic diet. But what's missing from that calculus is the fructose. So the fructose is the sweet molecule in sugar. It doesn't raise the serum glucose. It raises the serum fructose. You don't measure that in the glucose test. And it turns out that serum fructose is way more dangerous, way worse seven times worse. And actually at the liver, it's 250 times worse. And we have now learned that it is that fructose, even though it doesn't make the insulin go up immediately, it causes the chronic metabolic disease because it generates the insulin resistance in your cells, particularly in your liver. And that raises insulin levels all over the body. And now chronic disease is off to the races. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I'm going to mention right now, and then I'm, it's, it's appropriate to ask some of these questions, but first I want to tell people when you do get uh, Dr. Leslie's book and read it, which I recommend that you do, it's amazing, uh, there are no references in the back because there are, what, 1,100 references, and it would have made the book 70 page longer and cost, what, what do you say, $5 more? Five bucks more, more yeah. 
Yes. Yeah, so all the references, everything that Dr. Lustig is talking about today is available. All the references are in the book, but they're not actually printed in the book. It's the first time that HarperCollins has ever done this uh, because um, there's so many references. It's actually available online. I just wanted to mention that briefly. So you can go to metabolical.com yeah. and that will, um, and you will see all the references. Sorry about that. You'll see all the references, 1,054 references to the primary literature, okay? We're not talking about, you know, like to, you know, newspaper, you know, or, uh, you know, fan mail. We're talking about, you know, hardcore science for those of you. And I actually wrote this book to be uh, 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 usable in medical schools, you know, to teach nutrition to medical students. Right. And so it's got all of the data and all the references needed to, you know, make the case. Okay, so um, some of these questions might be more appropriate for when we get to the, um, the diet session at the end of our talk today, keto and vegan and everything else. But like the first, very first question here was, is about GMOs. We're gonna get back to that. Uh, but um, I think I'm gonna, you've already brought up branch chain amino acids and um, there are questions um, that one question is about, would you not, consume protein powder as a protein supplement unless the individual is working to build muscle. I believe you already answered that. Um, you say that too many branched chain amino acids are, are not good for you, but um, so unless you're building muscle, um, you would not recommend protein powder as a protein supplement. That's right. I mean, basically, okay. uh, muscle is 20% branched chain amino acids. So if you're building muscle and you're pumping iron and you're going to the gym and you're a gym rat, you know, then have at it because that's, you know, you can't build the muscle without those branch amino acids and they're all essential amino acids. You have to consume them. Your body can't make them. So I understand that. However, what if you're not a bodybuilder? What if you're a mere mortal like me and you're consuming excess branch chain amino acids, which by the way, are higher in corn fed beef, chicken, and fish. Okay. Because that's what's in corn, those branch chain amino acids. Well, now those branch chain amino acids go to the liver. I mean, you're not building muscle, so you've got this excess. What happens to it? They go to the liver. The liver takes the amino group off. Now they're branch chain organic acids. They enter the Krebs cycle, the tricarboxylic acid cycle, which burns it to go to ATP. It overwhelms the uh, mitochondria's capacity to be able to do it, throws it off as citrate, and then that citrate then causes that phenomenon called de novo lipogenesis that I mentioned earlier, new fat making. So branched-chain amino acids result in liver fat and insulin resistance also. And this is work of Dr. Christopher Newgard at Duke University. Okay. Um, impact of, of the processed food, which we're also talking about now, but on the brain, you mentioned uh, the brain. I think you might have already answered this question um, because you mentioned um, the brain a little bit. Uh, so is there something you want to add about um, highly processed food and brain? You can you did say they can lead to, you know, depression and other things, but. So we've always assumed glucose is the energy of the brain. And that is true. It is, but we're also learning that fructose gets across. We never thought it did, but it does. And it seems to actually poison mitochondria. 
It poisons mitochondria in the liver, that we're sure of, and it seems to poison mitochondria, not in the neurons per se, but in the astrocytes. And the astrocytes are the ones that feed the neurons. And so if those mitochondria are being def uh, uh, altered or, and are now defective, you can imagine that might have uh, effects on cognitive function, might have effects on behavioral health. And so we, we are now learning that, you know, that there are certain metabolic uh, abnormalities in the brain of people with, for instance, major depressive disorder, uh, possibly schizophrenia. And now uh, there's a whole move afoot uh, on using the ketogenic diet to treat, for instance, bipolar disorder. In fact, I just had a meeting about this uh, issue just yesterday um, uh, at UCSF. So there is, um, you know, th there's a wealth of information about how food affects the brain. And um, the, the, probably the single most problematic food stuff in terms of brain health is sugar. Yeah. We have a lot of questions about fruit. Um, can, cause you mentioned, you know, orange juice and you freeze it and then, you know, and people going, people asking, well, I buy frozen berries. Is, is that not good now? Um, how many pieces of fruit can I eat a day? And, um, and also, uh, yeah, it's a fruit, but it's been fermented. How much alcohol can I drink? <laughs> so, um, lots of questions about fruit. Talk, uh, talk yeah. about fruit a little bit because people. So everybody, everybody wants to know about fruit. I mean, you yeah. know, they hear yeah. fructose and they go, oh, fructose and fruit, yes. Well, right. the amount of sugar in a any fruit, okay, is dwarfed by the amount of fiber. And the fiber. It prevents that sugar absorption from the gut into the bloodstream. You are protecting the liver. So there are two kinds of fiber in fruit, soluble and insoluble. Okay? Soluble is like pectins or inulin, things that like hold, would hold jelly together. Yeah. Um, uh, cellulose, cellulose is like insoluble fiber, the stringy stuff in celery. All right? So you need both. Fruit has both. Now, if you consume a piece of whole piece of fruit, you are getting both. And what happens is the insoluble fiber forms a lattice work on the inside of the duodenum, like a fishnet. The soluble fiber are globular. The, the, those molecules are globular. They plug the holes in the fishnet. You can actually see it on electron microscopy, this whitish gel that forms on the inside of the duodenum. And that acts as a secondary barrier. And that prevents early absorption of all of those mono and disaccharides, all that sugar, from getting to the liver. So you are protecting the liver. Well, if you don't absorb it early, what happens to it? Well, it goes further down the intestine, goes to the next part of the intestine called the jejunum, and that's where the bacteria are. And so the bacteria will chew it up for its own purposes. So even though you consumed it, even though it passed your lips, even though it registered as a, quote, calorie, unquote, Okay. We'll do that later. <laughs> In fact, you never absorbed it because your bacteria got it instead. So you are feeding your gut. So you're protecting your liver and you're feeding your gut. So even though you consumed the fruit, the sugar wasn't for you. It was for your microbiome. So fruit is fine. Now, if you strain that fiber out, if you put it in a Breville or a Vitamix and you basically destroy the insoluble fiber and shear it to smithereens, you can't set up that fishnet. You've basically cut too many holes in the fishnet for it to work to be a barrier. 
And now the uh, mono and disaccharides will flood your liver, just like I talked about before. And so that's not so good. Now, the soluble fiber will still be there, so you might be feeding your gut. And this is a case, like I said at the beginning, where, you know, it doesn't do one of the two things. It doesn't protect your liver, but it does feed your gut. And so the data show that juice is sort of halfway in between. It's not as good as fruit, but it's better than, say, soda. So for people, um, and again, I'm jumping the gun with, but, but you mentioned smoothies already. So, and I've heard you say before, you know, and you just said it, try not to have fruit smoothies because you've just, as you put it, as, um, made them into, you know, <laughs> no longer useful or as useful as they could be. So eat the fruit. And right. if you're going to have a, a smoothie, make sure it's mostly vegetables. With maybe right. I mean, if you're look, if it's a green yeah. smoothie, there's nothing to protect the liver from. Got it. In which case, then it's not a big problem. But fruit okay. smoothies can be an issue. Okay, two more questions, and then we're going to move on to diets. But before going back a little bit, because we talked about lab tests and what to ask your doctor for uh, with regards to your your liver. But how do you test? Um, the question is, how do you test uh, for glucose and insulin? Well, so you can do a fasting glucose and insulin. That's what is typically done, and you should. Um, now, I will tell you that uh, I believe fasting insulin is probably the single best lab test to uh, determine metabolic health. The American Diabetes Association says very specifically on its website that you should not do this. You should not check fasting insulin, and I think it's the single best test there is. Now, why is this? that the American Diabetes Association says one thing, and I'm saying the exact opposite. Why is that? Here's why. Okay. Number one, they say that fasting insulin is not consistent across laboratory, uh, uh, different laboratories. Okay. It's, it's, a, it's an inconsistent um, uh, assay. That's almost true. There's some truth to that. So it turns out there is a species of insulin that is released from your pancreas when your pancreas is stressed called pro-insulin. Now, pro-insulin only has 5% of the activity of insulin. When your beta cells in your pancreas are chugging like crazy as they are in diabetes, okay, it doesn't have time to cleave the C-peptide out of the pro-insulin molecule to create the insulin and then package the insulin into vesicles and get it out because it's working overtime. And so it will end up releasing the pro-insulin. And the pro-insulin in bad insulin assays can be mistaken for the actual insulin molecule itself because they look a lot alike because, after all, one's the precursor of the other. So it is true that bad insulin assays will measure pro-insulin. But that's actually the point. And if it's high, that's telling you that your beta cells are not happy. So that's really kind of a dumb reason not to do it um, you know, for, for the ADA. Mm-hmm. Second reason, they say fasting insulin doesn't correlate with obesity. And that is true also. Who said it should? In fact, there are a lot of reasons for obesity other than insulin resistance. Fasting insulin tells you about insulin resistance. There are a lot of reasons for weight gain having nothing to do with that fasting insulin. The point is fasting insulin is a very good indicator of metabolic health. And lots of thin people 
are metabolically ill too. In fact, 40% of thin people are metabolically ill. And how would they know if they didn't get a fasting insulin? And there's an actual medical term for that, right? Uh, thin on the inside, fat on, no. Uh, thin on the outside, fat on the inside. That's right. It's called TOFI, T-O-F-I. Thin on the outside, fat on the inside. So that's one of the best ways to figure out whether you're a TOFI. It's one of the first things your doctor should be doing. So the bottom line is the ADA has their reasons for saying no. And I'm telling you, that's why I wrote the book. <laughs> Some, somebody asked a question. It really isn't appropriate, except I can't. I had a little chuckle privately here. Uh, which companies do we sue? <laughs> well, you know, that's that's a good question. Uh, well, all I can say is that there are several lawsuits against the food industry for different things and for specific things. I know about a fair number of them because I actually serve as an expert witness in an attempt to try to fix this problem. Um, I will say I do not have any vested interest in the outcome of those trials. I, so I, I'm, I'm not here as a shill for the plaintiff's bar. Yeah, this is the one we talked about last week. Um, uh, uh, about uh, processed food and how sugar doesn't isn't really a danger. Well, I won't. I don't want to talk names, so I yeah. I'll, I'll take that back. But anyway, uh, <laughs> can fatty liver disease be reversed? So, so there's there's the there's there's fatty liver, and then there's fatty liver plus inflammation. So, fatty liver is called hepatic steatosis. Fatty liver plus inflammation is called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Now, most of the people with fatty liver disease have just uh, fatty liver without inflammation, just steatosis. And if you have just steatosis, you can absolutely reverse it. Once you pass over the threshold to inflammation, then the scarring starts. And when the scarring starts, that cannot be reversed. Then it's forever. And so the goal is to make sure you reverse this before you get to that point. Because once the scarring starts, then you are on your way to cirrhosis. Okay. And now non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is the leading cause of liver transplant in the United States, having overtaken hepatitis C. And the reason is because people don't know they have fatty liver because their doctor thinks that an ALT of 33 is okay. And all of a sudden, now they've got fatty liver plus inflammation, and now they've got a problem that won't go away. So the goal is to figure this out before the point of no return. Another reason I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, lots of great questions. Um, it's hard to know which ones to read. Um, but this is kind of more of a comment than a question. Um, it's kind of a nice comment. Lots of nice comments uh, thanking you for, for this book and how everybody should have it and read it. And I definitely agree. But this person says, my daughter has Crohn's disease and has achieved clinical remission through diet alone, eating only real food, no meds, which more doctors would realize the value of nutrition for healing. Boy, isn't that the truth, right? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to tell you I know this because I don't. I I've only have anecdotal uh, evidence, and that is not evidence. And I'm very clear that ends of one are not science. However, I've had many people with Crohn's disease tell me that when they got off processed food, their Crohn's disease got better. Mm -hmm. That's a relatively common uh, refrain. Now, that doesn't mean that ultra processed food is the cause of Crohn's, but it is interesting that so many people seem to get better. 
Right. And for those who aren't in this world, perhaps they might not know what the N of one means. So maybe just explain the N of one that you. Well, I'm a scientist. Okay. And you know, an N of one means an anecdote, you know, one person. And it means that it wasn't done scientifically. Okay. I'm a scientist. I believe in data. I believe in statistics. You know, you have to prove things to me. Okay, but once you've proven them to me, I adopt them. The problem with the medical profession is you can provide some you know, proof to some people and they will never change their minds because they are completely recalcitrant. They are calcified in their beliefs. And the reason invariably is because they have money riding on it, mm-hmm. like grant money or, you know, um, you know, they've written their own book or whatever. Right. So I've heard you say that certain disease states, such as type 2 diabetes, are the symptoms and not the problem, quote, um, real diseases are the subcellular, subcellular pathways, unquote. But before you dial into that, I, I want to briefly also talk about uh, COVID. And here's another quote from you. Um, I've heard COVID-19 referred to as a beast because it doesn't distinguish it doesn't distinguish in point of fact it does distinguish who, who doesn't distinguish who it infects but it does distinguish who it kills other than the elderly it's those who are black obese and or have pre-existing conditions what distinguish these three demographics ultra processed food because the ultra processed food sets you up for inflammation which covid 19 is happy to exploit just another way processed food kills time to rethink your menu so talk about that as you talk about what does real diseases are the subcellular pathologies mean? Sure. So let's talk about COVID first. Yeah. Uh, my nonprofit called Eat Real, and you can find it online, eatreal.org, and we are getting real food into schools all over the country because, you know, uh, American schools are the largest fast food franchise in the world, and we got to fix that. Um, we published a medical alert where we basically called out the NIH and the CDC for screwing up. And I mean that very specifically. They screwed up. Here's how. They've told us three things to do. And I'm all for those three things. Masking, social distancing, hand washing. I'm for those. But they didn't tell us about the fourth. Yeah. The food. You never hear anyone at NIH or CDC ever mention the food. Turns out, those three groups, those three demographics, BIPOC, uh, obese, pre-existing conditions, they share one thing in common, ultra-processed food. So why does ultra-processed food make people with COVID die? Answer, three ways. First, the virus is very smart. It uses a receptor on virtually every cell in your body as its injector point. And it's called ACE2, angiotensin converting enzyme 2, happens to be an endocrine receptor, something I take care of, okay, involved in water transport. The, the more ACE2 receptors, the more infective the COVID virus is. Well, turns out insulin resistance, high insulin levels, drive those ACE2 receptors up, giving the virus more of a chance to infect all your cells at once. Therefore, a bigger viral load. Number two, the lack of fiber. The lack of fiber, those colonic bacteria love that soluble fiber. They turn that soluble fiber into short-chain fatty acids called butyrate and propionate. And these have been shown to be immune suppressive. They suppress the cytokine storm of COVID-19. 
and they also are anti-insulin, so they help pre- you know prevent weight gain too. So the fiber helps uh, mitigate the COVID um, nastiness, if you will. But the problem is ultra-processed food is fiberless food. And then finally, number three, diabetes itself, high blood glucose. The glucose crystallizes around the edges of those ACE2s and holds it open so that the virus has an even easier time to inject. So bottom line, ultra-processed food makes doesn't cause you to get infected with COVID. That's what the hand-washing and the... Um, um, Uh, masking and the social distancing is supposed to prevent is supposed to prevent infectivity but morbidity and mortality it's about the food and you don't hear the nih or cdc saying word one about this okay and so i have a bone to pick with tony fauci okay for not dealing with it let's pick it what what is it exactly well that's the that's it you want him to focus more on on food on the food they should have been doing this from the beginning we showed at UCSF um, back in 2015, that we can reverse the metabolic health, uh, the metabolic dysfunction in any kid in nine days flat by yeah. getting sugar out of kids' diets. That's one of my starch. Yeah, talk about that study because I think that's absolutely fascinating, and, and that will segue into uh, the the diet questions I have and the diet questions that most of our uh, listeners have. So sure. first, talk about that amazing study you did with children. So we call this the kids study. We took 43 children from our obesity clinic at UCSF, Mm -hmm. Latino and African-American. So low socioeconomic status, all high processed food consumers, all high sugar consumers. And what we did was we studied them on their home diet at baseline. And then for the next nine days, we catered their meals, no added sugar. We took the percent of calories from sugar in their diet from 28% down to 10%. We gave them fruit. That's where they got their sugar. But all the other food was no added sugar. Now, if you remove that percent from 28 to 10, you're going to lose about 350 to 400 calories a day out of the diet. And if you do that for 10 days, you might lose weight. We didn't want our patients to lose weight because if they lost weight and they got better, people will say, of course, they got better. They lost weight. We didn't want them to lose weight. We wanted them to stay the same weight or even gain. Right. Right. So what we did was we instead we took the sugar out. What we did was we put the excess starch in. Okay. We gave them processed starch. So in the vernacular, we took the pastries out, we put the bagels in. We took the sweetened yogurt out, we put the baked potato chips in. We took the chicken teriyaki out, we put the turkey hot dogs in. So we didn't give them good food, we gave them crappy food. We gave them processed food, ultra-processed food. We gave them kid food, food kids would eat, but it was no added sugar food. And we gave them a scale. And every day, we call them up on the phone, what's your way? And if it turned out they were losing weight, eat more! in order to keep weight stable through the entire 10-day period. And then we studied them again. Every aspect of their metabolic health got better and without change in subcutaneous fat. But the liver fat went down 22%. And as just by switching from from sugar to starch, the liver fat went away and... The insulin secretion got better as the fat went away. 
So we know it was the fat that was, you know, because the liver was sick, the pancreas had to make extra insulin to make the liver do its job. So when you fix the liver, the pancreas got better too. We reversed these kids' metabolic syndrome with no change in calories and no change in weight, which is why a calorie is not a calorie and a sugar is not a sugar. And to be honest with you, a fat's not a fat and a protein's not a protein. And the problem is the food industry doesn't want you to know that which is another reason I had to write the book. <laughs> so, um, okay, so you, um, I think we're going to move into diets now because, again, that's where um, most of these questions are. And so, um, and that was going to be my segue in, which you already just said, uh, a, a calorie, and you, I've been hearing you say this for years, calorie is it's a calorie, sugar is sugar, drives you nuts, and food ma- is what they do to food. We've already covered a little bit about what food manufacturers do to food, but before we go into keto and, you know, vegan and specifics of diets and answer these questions, because it's, it's 10 to 11, we're, we're good with time here, let's start by explaining exactly why a calorie is not a calorie and sugar is not a sugar. Okay. It's not just a sugar. Yeah, sure. let's start with that. Well, I've already kind of explained it to some extent. Let yeah. me, let me let, let, let's take an example. Let's take almonds. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You eat 160 calories in almonds. How many do you absorb? Turns out you absorb 130. Okay. You ate 160, you absorb 130. Mm-hmm. Where'd the other 30 go? The fiber in the almonds set up that gel. And so you didn't absorb them early. They went further down the intestine and the bacteria chewed them up instead. So because those calories came in almonds, those calories weren't for you. They were for your bacteria. You know how when people are pregnant, you say, well, you're eating for two. Well, we're always eating for a hundred trillion. Okay. And the question is how much did you get versus how much did they get? The more ultra processed it is, the more you get. The more unprocessed, the more they get. So even though it passed your lips, even though it registered as a, quote, calorie, who cares? If it, if it didn't enter your bloodstream, what's the difference? In fact, you fed your bacteria, which is a good thing. So a calorie is not a calorie if it, was, if it came with fiber because your bacteria got it instead and you fed your gut. You protected your liver and you fed your gut. That made it healthy irrespective of the calories. That's one reason. Second reason, protein. Now, if you're building protein, the amino acids go to making the protein. Fair. But if you're not building protein and you eat protein, where do this, where's the protein go? It gets if you're not building muscle and... Right. If you're, if you're not building muscle, muscle or anything else or, okay. or bone or, you know, if you're not yeah. in growth phase. Okay, got it. Okay? Mm-hmm. You're not a kid and you're growing. Okay. Yeah. Where does that, where does where does the protein go? It gets chopped up into amino acids. The amino acids go to the liver and the liver is going to turn those amino acids into energy. Now, it turns out in order to take the amino group off, a, off an amino acid and turn it into an organic acid so it can be burned for energy, you have to invest energy. You have to actually sink energy into the process. And so you lose, there's a net loss of energy when you're turning a protein calorie into energy as opposed to a carbohydrate calorie. So on net, you derive fewer ATPs. You derive fewer energy molecules 
because it was a protein. So a calorie is not a calorie because it was protein. It's not the same as a carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. Fat. So over here on this side, we have omega-3 fatty acids, heart-healthy, anti-Alzheimer's, anti-inflammatory, save your life. Single yep. best thing you can put in your body. Yep. You find them in marine oils. Over here, you got trans fats, the devil incarnate, okay? Consumable poison, okay? And we now know that, and the FDA finally has, has gotten rid of them out of our food supply. Thank God. Only yep. took them 25 years, really. Yep. Um, they're both nine calories per gram. One will save your life, one will kill you. So a calorie is not a calorie because they have different effects on your metabolic health and on your longevity. And finally, fructose and glucose, like we talked about before. So glucose is the energy of life. Fructose is a completely vestigial molecule that only plants use as an energy source. Okay, It just so happens it's really sweet, and it activates the reward center, and it's addictive. That's all. <laughs> That's all. Now, um, back to a little bit to omega-3 fatty acids, marine, but what about, um, talk about EPA, um, DHA, so, and the differences thereof. Right. So they're both important, EPA and DHA. E EPA stands for icosopentaenoic acid. DHA stands for docohexaenoic acid. Do not worry. You will not be quizzed on this. <laughs> but it is in the book, if you, you know, so as a reference. They're both important. They both invo are involved in structural membranes, especially in neurons. And so they're very important in terms of brain health and brain development, especially for babies, which is why now they are both put into baby formula to help babies grow their brains. Um, and also they are anti-inflammatory. They um, activate an, an, you know, an immune cascade in, that, that basically keeps the immune system from going hog wild. Conversely, we have other uh, uh, fatty acids called omega-6 fatty acids, linoleic acid. This is what's basically in corn oil, soybean oil, a lot of the seed oils. Now, they're important, too. It's not that they're bad, okay, but they are the precursors to arachidonic acid, which is pro-inflammatory. That's the inflammatory uh, 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 fatty acid, and it causes prostaglandins. It's the, the precursor to prostaglandins, which cause pain and inflammation, and you, know, and you need inflammation because if you didn't have inflammation, you'd be eaten by the maggots. I mean, you would have an immune deficiency. All right. So you need to be able to do that. On the other hand, you don't want to do it too much. And the problem is the more omega-6s you consume, the more you're doing it at baseline, whether you have an infection or not. And so we now know that omega-6s are sort of bad guys in the story, and you don't want to be consuming too many of them. But ultra-processed food is virtually like straight omega-6. Okay, so we have a lot of questions that have come in that I haven't even looked at yet. So, um, and I think they're mostly about um, food. Um, I'll, I'll read these while you're explaining. I've heard you talk about um, uh, diet, diet wards. You, you know, we're talking vegan, keto, other, the, you say it's, they're false wars. Yep. Um, and so, and then we already talked about the study with the children. But I've heard you say that, you know, you don't need a diet if you eat real food. So talk while I'm going through these um, audience member questions, um, explain the differences of, of these eating ways people eat, vegan, yeah. 
keto, which are like the opposite extremes and the kind of the religious fervor. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. It's, is, it's very religious and it's and it's inappropriate. I will tell you, not 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 because it, it's inappropriate, but be, to have religious fervor over it is what's inappropriate, because this is not religion. OK, this is science and we have the data. Now, I am not against vegan. I'm also not for it. I'm not against keto. I'm also not for it. I'm basically I'm for real food. Okay. And vegan can be real food and keto can be real food, but vegan can also not be real food. Just like keto cannot be real food. You know, it depends on how you're doing it. So for instance, Coke Doritos and Oreos are all vegan. Okay. That doesn't make them good. Clearly. Um, So vegan means plants. Okay. I get it. And I also understand that, you know, people are worried about the environment and they're worried about cows. Yeah. Right. And, and I'll and quote I, you before. Here's your quote about cows. Quote, the cows are not the friggin' problem. Unquote. That's right. <laughs> that is correct. Um, so the cows are not the friggin' problem for two reasons. Okay. The first is when you actually look at the amount of methane produced by cows, it's not that much it's half of agricultural methane compared to what uh, industry and transportation is doing it's a drop in the bucket yes it's a drop in the bucket that could be controlled i don't argue that but think of it this way there are three greenhouse gases not one there are three there's carbon dioxide now its heat trapping capacity is low but there's a whole lot of it there's nitrous oxide its heat trapping capacity is 250 times higher than carbon dioxide. And there's a fair amount of it. And where does it come from? It comes from nitrogen fertilizer that fertilized all the vegetables and the plants because the cows aren't on the farm pooping and manuring and, you know, fixing the nitrogen in the soil. So instead of it being soil, it's dirt. And if you want to grow uh, corn in dirt, you have to spray it with nitrogen fertilizer. So it has something to grow and that, you know, contaminates the water tables and it ends up, you know, causing dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico and climate change, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And that all came from plants. And then finally there's methane. Now methane is 25 times more heat trapping than carbon dioxide. So yes, that's a problem, but there's not that much of it. It's actually pretty low. And so on the you know big damage scale, and it doesn't last that long in the atmosphere. It only lasts nine years as compared, compared to carbon dioxide, which lasts 33 years, and um, nitrous oxide, which lasts 114 years. So on the big scale of the three greenhouse gases, methane is like the lowest. It's the least concerning of all the greenhouse gases but that's the one cows make all right now there's another reason to not be mad at the cows in 1968 there were more heads of cattle in america than there are today and they made one-fifth the methane that the cows today make how come there are fewer cows but five times more methane and the answer the answer is antibiotics. antibiotics. The antibiotics we give to the cows who live on the CAFO basically killed off their regular bacteria, allows the methanogens like Acromansia and Archaea to uh, populate. And basically, these cows are now you know, making methane hand over fist compared to what they used to do. But guess what? So are we. Yeah. 
we make more methane too. Okay, no one's talking about getting rid of us. Okay, yeah. it's not the cows, it's what we did to the cows. So let's undo that. Leave the cows alone, take them off the CAFO, put them back on the farm so they can poop and make the corn grow. Okay, that's called regenerative farming. And that's what we need to do to fix the climate change crisis, but we can't do that until we get rid of the food subsidies, because that's what's causing all the growers to grow the wrong stuff in the first place. Okay, so I'm going to summarize what you said, and then we're going to try to answer um, some of these uh, questions, um, but we're going to have to do it quickly, because we only have about five minutes left. Um, So keto, it's not, like you said, it's not keto, it's not vegan, it is eat real food. Um, Keto is fine. I have nothing against keto. It's hard to stay on, but if you can stay on it, that's good. If you fall off keto and it's easy to fall off because, you know, all you have to do is raise your insulin and now you're not on keto anymore. Now you're on a high fat, medium carbohydrate diet, which is like the worst possible diet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're really in keto, fine. I'm, 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 I'm a supporter. I'm a fan. No problem. If you're vegan, you know, that's fine too. You can be vegan. I'm not against vegan. You know, please, you know, you want to be vegan? Fine. Just don't make everybody else vegan. Yeah. Real food answers both issues. And to be honest with you, vegans and the keto is really on the same side. It's the processed food that's on the other side. Right. So, okay, we're going to, let's see if you can do this, uh, Rob. This is going to be interesting. So we, I'd like to get through in the next three minutes, as many of these questions we can. So see if you can do a, a, Really right. brief answer to these, and I know that these aren't are big one part answers. <laughs> okay, one part answers. Um, do the GMO vegetables that we see at Walmart fall under real food realm? Um, as those also include fiber, does real food mean organic or conventional? Uh, okay. Conventional one sentence so, answer, right? Organic doesn't mean good. Okay, organic means no pesticides, but it doesn't mean good. GMO, we don't have the data yet. The only thing we know is glyphosate's a bad guy. Okay, got it. Okay, we've already answered these questions. Um, uh, what is your guidance on appropriate alcohol, alcohol consumption? Is wine nightly okay? One glass a day is fine. How big a glass? Uh, uh, you know, well, there's all sorts of... Four to of five ounce powder. glass of wine okay. is fine if you're an adult. Okay, Not if you're it. a kid. Okay. <laughs> um, let's see. By freezing full berries, do we significantly uh, impact the fiber? I think we already covered that one. Berries are, have the lowest sugar, highest fiber ratio. Okay. Um, so, do you are you are you saying to not consume or cook with frozen vegetables? No, okay. you can cook with frozen vegetables if you're making okay. a stew. But you okay. know, frozen okay. vegetables are mushy, and most people don't like mushy. Yeah, no. Okay, we already answered the question about fatty liver disease being reversed. The risks of serum fructose, does that mean, or fructose, as you say, I, uh, I, I've got it, yeah. Well, we've been fruct is what we Are been. you okay? <laughs> does that mean there's a limit to the amount of fresh fruit? No, we already answered this one. No, okay. fresh fruit's fine. Yeah. Um, when you refer to sugars, is it primarily cane sugar and high fructose corn syrup that we need to be concerned about? Or do we also need to be limit sugar from fruit, honey, and maple syrup? So honey, maple syrup, agave, all the same as sucrose and high fructose corn syrup. Fruit is got fiber. Those The other ones don't. What is your view on powdered forms of adaptogens and superfoods, please? Uh, some of them are okay, and some of them are hyped. 
I know you don't like to talk about your own diet, but I have three questions. Yeah, uh, I figured. Yeah, I know. So basically, you know, I can say that I've known you for 12 or 13 years now, and, and I think you eat pretty well, right? I, I used to eat terribly. You know, I used to be the master of the three-second lunch, you know, because, you know, when you go to medical school, you don't have a whole lot of time to eat. And I used to basically think of, you know, food as an afterthought. But, you know, my work in this field has, you know, certainly changed what I do. My wife and I used to eat out three times a week, and now we eat out maybe once a month, if that. There you go. So we already talked about the Crohn's disease, love the COVID morbidity and mortality connection to ultra processed food, lucid description. Okay, that wasn't clear. Dr. David Katz has been a proponent of health and nutrition educator in response to COVID. Please, what are your thoughts about for okay, that was just a comment then. Please, what are your thoughts about fermented foods like cheeses and organic plain yogurt, ingredients only, milk and bacteria? Um, and whole grains, breads. Oh, that's a, I was going to bring that up too. Um, whole grains, there's a difference between a whole grain and an attacked, intact that's right. grain. That's so right. um, that, Ooh. fermented Yo- food. Yogurt is fine. Fermented foods are fine. Nothing wrong with them. Go for it. Um, in fact, they may actually be, you know, uh, helpful in terms of probiotic uh, restitution of uh, your microbiome. In terms of whole grain, it's very simple. Is it really a whole grain? Just because they say whole, it's a whole grain doesn't mean it is. In fact, usually it's not. They can say it because it started with whole grain. As soon as they pulverized it, it ain't whole. Right. Uh, The horse is out of the barn, the starch is out, it will get uh, uh, absorbed rapidly and you will be flooding your liver. So if it actually stays as a kernel, so like a wheat berry, then it's fine. As soon as you've taken a a, a mortar and pestle to it or a mill or pulverizer or whatever else or eaten any any food that's fluffy, you're done. It's, yeah, it's, it's just okay, a, we're, we, I, you know, we're definitely went a little bit over here. I'm going to close out, but I want you to answer one word. Is popcorn high fiber? Popcorn is not high fiber. Okay, that's enough of, of that. So, so wow, that was a lot of information. That was, <laughs> it was just amazing. Rapid fire. So that I love it. Lightning round. That was lightning round. So anyway. Oh, it was on password. <laughs> <laughs> so in closing, uh Uh, Thank you all for joining us today. And our thanks to Dr. Robert Lustig for your comments here today. The video will soon be posted on the club's website, and we encourage you to visit online at commonwealthclub.org and to view this and other programs. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.